Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, The Baptism of Jesus, A Vision and a Voice, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January the 7th, 2007. After living in total obscurity his entire life, in his late twenties, Jesus left his family in Nazareth and burst onto the public scene by joining the movement of his eccentric cousin John. Some scholars have suggested that Jesus submitted himself to John as a disciple, to a mentor, and that perhaps John was part of the apocalyptic Jewish sect called the Essenes, who opposed the temple in Jerusalem. By any measure, John the Baptizer was a prophet of radical descent. His detractors said he had a demon. Luke 7.33 Whereas his father was a priest in the Jerusalem temple, John fled the comforts and corruptions of the city for the loneliness of the desert, where he dressed in animal skins and ate insects and wild honey. Living on the periphery of society, both literally and figuratively, he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which is to say that he announced a message of both indictment and invitation. Repent, said John, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later, Jesus used these exact words to announce his own public ministry. The Gospels record that people flocked to John at the Jordan River. John's preaching in the Judean desert and baptizing in the Jordan River confounded the religious and political powers of his day. Imperial Rome, which later murdered him when John rebuked Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife, and the temple establishment in Jerusalem, which claimed a gatekeeper monopoly on mediating God's forgiveness to people. John castigated the religious authorities as what he called a brood of vipers, or in one translation, snake bastards. The religious experts, said Jesus, spurned John's call to baptismal repentance, and in so doing, he said, rejected God's purpose for themselves. Luke 7, verse 30. Instead of cooperation, accommodation, or resignation, John challenged these religious and political powers with his anti-establishment message of protest and renewal. And by joining John the Baptizer's fringe movement, Jesus did likewise. With some important stylistic differences, all four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' baptism by John. In the Gospel for this week, in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, we read, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. No wonder that after this radical rupture with his family, 
and with conventional society, by identifying with the desert troublemaker, eventually Jesus' own family tried to apprehend him, and his entire hometown village of Nazareth tried to kill him as a deranged crackpot. Why did Jesus the Greater get baptized by John the Lesser? Did he need to repent of his own sins? The earliest witnesses of the baptism must have asked this question, because in Matthew's Gospel, John the baptizer tried to dissuade Jesus. Why do you come to me? I need to be baptized by you. Even a hundred years later, Jesus' baptism by John made some Christians uneasy, as evidenced by the non-canonical Gospel of the Hebrews, written somewhere around 150 A.D., in which Jesus denies any need to repent. He seems to get baptized to please his mother. We read in the Gospel of the Hebrews, quote, The mother of the Lord and his brothers said to him, John the Baptist baptizes for the forgiveness of sins. Let us go and be baptized by him. But he said to them, In what way have I sinned that I should go and be baptized by him? Unless perhaps what I have just said is a sin of ignorance. Others have suggested that Jesus set an example for us, that just as he was baptized, we too should be baptized. Jesus' baptism inaugurated his public ministry by identifying with what Luke describes as, quote, all the people, end quote. He allied himself with the faults and failures, pains and problems of all the broken and hurting people who had flocked to the Jordan River. By wading into the waters with them, he took his place beside us and among us. Not long into his public mission, the sanctimonious religious leaders derided Jesus as a friend of gluttons and sinners. With his baptism, Jesus openly and decisively declared that he stands shoulder to shoulder with me in my fears and anxieties. He intentionally takes sides with people in their neediness and declares that God is biased in their favor. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God's abundant mercy, Jesus declared, was available directly and immediately to every person. It was not the private preserve doled out by the temple establishment. Jesus' baptismal compassion for and solidarity with broken people was vividly confirmed by divine affirmation and empowerment. Still wet with water after his cousin had plunged him beneath the Jordan River, Jesus heard a voice and saw a vision. The declaration of God the Father that Jesus was his beloved Son and the descent of God the Spirit 
in the form of a dove. The vision and the voice punctuated the baptismal event. They signaled the meaning, the message, and the mission of Jesus as he went public after 30 years of invisibility. That by the power of the Spirit, he embodied God's coming kingdom that welcomes people without exception or condition. And now for further reflection. What do you make of John the Baptist? Why do you think that Jesus joined John's movement? Why do you think Jesus submitted himself to John's baptism? And finally, how do religious and political powers deny people access to God's free mercy? For books this week, I review a book by Reynolds Price, Letter to a Godchild Concerning Faith. New York, Scribner, 2006, 95 pages. This slender volume originated as a gift to Reynolds Price's godson back in the year 2000. He's expanded the original letter in order to describe what he says succinctly and as honestly I could manage the advancing line of my own religious life, so that I might provide a useful sense of how one person's existence shaped itself around an early inexplicable event and move forward from there till now, the start of my eighth decade. Price was born in 1933. His intention is not to write a children's book or even a book to read to children, but to produce what he calls a document that would be genuine, genuinely helpful to a friend in his early adult years. The inexplicable event that Price mentions was a vision that he had when he was only six or seven of a wheel that symbolized the intimate unity of the vast complexity of all life, all of which was cared for by a benevolent power. Combined with beloved Bible story books and then his own reading of the Bible, Price wrote himself into the narrative of the Christian story very early on. By age 17, he knew he wanted to be a writer and a teacher, and by any measure, he's enjoyed ex enormous success and acclaim. Professor of English at Duke University since 1958, author of 37 volumes of fiction, poetry, essays, and plays that have been translated into 17 languages, and a member of both the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Academy of Arts and Letters. After graduating from Duke and then from Oxford University, Price began his tenure back at Duke. By that time, he still understood himself to be distinctly and intentionally Christian, even though his, what he calls his renegade faith has expressed itself ever since in decidedly non-institutional and unorthodox ways. At age 51, tragedy struck when he was diagnosed with cancer of the spinal cord. Subsequent treatments resulted in the entire paralysis of his lower body. At this point, Price recounts a second vision 
more vivid and more profound than the first he had as a young boy. In this later vision, he was standing in the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus washed his massive surgical scar and pronounced over him words of healing and forgiveness. In his mind, he was miraculously healed, for against the medical prognosis of his doctors, Price survived not only the cancer, but the barbaric radiation treatments. He writes eloquently about how his life has flourished in far richer ways because of his paraplegia. In the last few pages of this testimonial, Price offers his godson practical advice for spiritual formation, including suggested readings, serving the poor, identifying with saints, and frequenting sacred spaces. Duke University professor Reynolds Price, Letter to a Godchild Concerning Faith. For film this week, I review The Party's Over from the year 2001. A scruffy Philip Seymour Hoffman takes to the road with a camera crew in the six months before the 2000 presidential election in order to document the dysfunctions of our political system. There's nothing new, ambitious, or very challenging about that goal, and Hoffman does nothing to deepen or clarify the film's subject, which by its end is entirely predictable. More disgruntled citizens, mainly from the left, some of them famous, others obscure, like homeless activists and sloganeering protesters. The film also loses focus by a staccato presentation of endless hot-button issues, including farm aid, the WTO, the Million Mom March, legalization of drugs, capital punishment, welfare, corporate influence, voter apathy, and the like. Much of the film focuses on the Republican and Democratic presidential conventions. But just how much can you learn from 30-second sound bites from Willie Nelson, Charlton Heston, Ralph Reed, Noam Chomsky, Susan Sarandon, Rosie O'Donnell, Bianca Jagger, Pat Robertson, Barney Frank, and Newt Gingrich? Of course, at this point, the film is also badly dated. Philip Seymour Hoffman in the film The Party's Over. And finally this week, for the new year, we've posted a New Year's poem by Alfred Tennyson, who lived from 1809 to 1892. Ring out, wild bells, to the wild sky, the flying cloud, the frosty light. The year is dying in the night. Ring out, wild bells, and let him die. Ring out the old, ring in the new, Ring, happy bells, across the snow. The year is going, let him go. Ring out the false, ring in the true. Ring out the grief that saps the mind. For those that here we see no more. Ring out the feud of rich and poor. Ring in redress to all mankind. Ring out a slowly dying cause and ancient forms of party strife. Ring in the nobler modes of life with sweeter manners, 
purer laws. Ring out the want, the care, the sin, the faithless coldness of the times. Ring out, ring out my mournful rhymes, but ring the fuller minstrel in. Ring out false pride in place and blood, the civic slander and the spite. Ring in the love of truth and right. Ring in the common love of good. Ring out old shapes of foul disease. Ring out the narrowing lust of gold. Ring out the thousand years of war. Ring in the thousand years of peace. Ring in the valiant man and free, the larger heart, the kindlier hand. Ring out the darkness of the land. Ring in the Christ that is to be. A New Year's Poem by Alfred Tennyson Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January the 7th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.